IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review new albums by Billie Eilish and Foxing. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? All right, so I just got to warn our listeners, if like my voice sounds a little bit like huskier and lower today, it's not because I'm trying to do kind of like a soft-spoken Billie Eilish thing. Um, I've actually been homesick the past couple of days, like, which is... Oh, yeah, it's man. like I've gotten like two COVID tests in the past four days, both negative. But like this is this is just how spooked I am by the whole deal. But um, yeah, like I mean, being homesick, like unlike being homesick from school, like this is not fun. Creates more work for me. But um, what I you know I was sick a few uh, weeks ago, and I was wondering if I had yeah, COVID, but I don't think it, I don't think, but you know if I did, it was totally fine because it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> uh, you know yeah. what I mean. I mean, do you think we're all going to get COVID at some point? It seems inevitable. It seems like getting the flu. And as long as you're vaccinated, it, you should be okay. But uh, Feel good episode of uh, IndieCast. We're all going to get COVID. <laughs> well, well, I don't, you know, I just feel like, again, if you're vaccinated, yeah. it seems that it's it's not that big of a deal. You'll just feel sick for a few days and you'll, you'll move on. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to um, have to have like a, but, like a warning on this episode. Like, Ian and Steve are not doctors. If you, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm trying to look on the bright side here. If, if, if that happens. Yeah, I do think we have to like adjust to the new reality. But, um, you know, there, there, there are only two upsides to being homesick. Like the first is which, you know, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. The closest thing I get is like when the rare times when I'm sick, where I can take Dayquil and listen to My Morning Jackets at dawn. Oh man, like that's the that is the closest thing I can get to a psychedelic experience uh, these days. Um, and secondly, like I don't know, like I'm not healing, but nature is because you know when I'm home all day, I can be on Twitter more and I can be up on the discourse. And you know, this week's disc. Uh, do you have like the director of the Woodstock 99 docs like email or like a home address? I, I need to send that guy a Christmas card or something like that. For <laughs> just he, like unintentionally has released so many uh, dormant bands or cultural threads back into the discourse. Like I've had to think about the offspring a lot recently. Right. Like first off the hair, like noodles and Dexter Holland, just f- f- like phenomenal hair. Right. Uh, like televangelist, but like Southern California pop punk. <laughs> well, especially <laughs> so, Noodles is like yeah. uh, going pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. And also rocking the uh, Black Lives Matter shirt in the <laughs> Black Sabbath font, which is which is pretty great. But then, yeah, they, uh, they had their issue with the drummer this week. Yeah. Where uh, the drummer won't get vaccinated. So then uh-huh. he's out of the band. And um, <laughs> which... Is in a way you can we could tie this to Woodstock '99. It also makes me think in yeah. some way of like the Mumford and Sons story from earlier this yeah. year, like where the violin player. No, I'm sorry, the banjo player. Is there a violin player in, in Mumford? I don't think probably, there is. but that's not the guy we're talking about. Yeah. It would be it's much it's much that story was much funnier because he plays the banjo, right? But he didn't. He got kicked out because he was an Andy No fan. So there's like a right wing thing there, and then yeah. I, I don't know. I guess with the offspring drummer he has a a prior condition and i was reading this that his doctor said that he shouldn't get vaccinated because 
it would, I forget what his uh, pre-existing condition is, but it would exacerbate that. So it's not like an ideological thing. It's, it's a health thing, apparently. Uh, but yeah, they're back in the convo. There's all... And there's all this Limp Biscuit stuff too, you know, because they were yeah. they were just at Lollapalooza. They were. Speaking of wigs, <laughs> yeah, and 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 they sh- and Fred Durst shouted out Woodstock '99, not the movie specifically, but he said this isn't Woodstock '99. You know, the, it has nothing to do with that bullshit. I think was the quote, okay. which was an amazing moment, by the way, yeah. for, for me personally to to see that. Um, but, but yeah, th- this week was Limp Biscuit discourse. Like it's like yeah. we're picking out of a hat. Like what what's gonna be the discourse this week? Uh, you know, like there was also a Sublime re- reimagining because like it was twenty five years after theirs. But like yeah, Limp Biscuit's kind of like the last frontier yeah. of like optimism. You know. Well, my my take on that is that it has less to do with Limp Biscuit and more about people just being really irritated with Moby. <laughs> you know, where, you know, Moby is in the movie trashing new metal and he irritates people so much that they're compelled to take the opposite sides. Like, he hates Limp Biscuit, <laughs> then I love Limp Biscuit. You know, it, it, it's very social media uh, reactionary type thing. And I wonder <laughs> if it's going to be shallow for that reason, because I, yeah. I, I don't see a lot of people making like, like a substantive case or, you know, chocolate starfish in the hot dog flavored water being mm-hmm. in a maligned masterpiece. I mean, like, for me personally, like, I'll say, I think there's, like, a handful of, like, Limp Bizkit singles that I enjoy. I, I legitimately like the song My Way. I think that's a good, catchy song. And I, could, right. and I could see them being a good festival band. You know, mm. I think they could play, like, a 45-minute set and it would be enjoyable. Um, but like a deep dive into their catalog, I think would, would reveal a lot of garbage. I mean, I, I, I think by and large, their catalog is not that great. Nah, like even back when they were like, like, I think I reviewed chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water for my college newspaper. Um, like I actually honestly think like a deep dive into Limp Bizkit would be far more interesting than like, you know, the singles, because like, I never, like, I never liked Limp Bizkit. Um, it'd be interesting, but like. Would it be would it be good in the sense of like oh you're discovering all these gems that people well, don't what else you know? do I have what else do I have better to do I mean, I mean I would <laughs> I, yeah because you and I were critics so we are into that sort of thing where if you can write an interesting take on something that yeah. hasn't been written about to death it's it's inherently uh, you're going to be on board with that um, can I just say like I don't want to get too much into this because I've tried to I do. <laughs> I, I, I've tried to avoid like responding to critiques of of the movie uh, because I'm just glad people watch the movie uh, yeah. and uh, that they have an opinion on it. It seems like a lot of people have watched it, which is which is great. But um, I just want to say, like, I feel that so many people, not everybody, but a lot of people watch the movie and they get mm-hmm. to about the 45 minute mark, and that's when Moby goes on his little like anti new metal tirade that lasts about 30 seconds in the movie and they're so annoyed by it that they immediately go to their phone and they go on a tweet storm talking about how new metal is being blamed for what's like 99 and this film is being unfair and yada 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 and in the process of doing that they miss literally four people after him refuting what he just (laughs) said including jonathan davis of corn who in my opinion comes off 
as well as anybody in the movie. Absolutely. Uh, very articulate, very reasonable guy. His performance, you you don't see much of it, but it's it, Oh my it's god. It's pretty fantastic performance. Oh my god. Like I watched like even like even before all this nostalgia, I would just like sometimes like uh just oh, I feel like watching the Corn 99 uh performance of Blind on YouTube. It's like it's just something like I regularly watch every like a couple of weeks. Yeah. It's just like it, it gives me chills like, you know, in a in a way that I can separate from like wow, like the rest of Woodstock 99. Yeah, and and Corn I think you can make a legitimate case. Certainly their first three or four albums being yeah. really legitimately good. innovative. Yeah, and innovative, forward thinking, you know, being totally removed from the classic rock canon in uh, a way that say grunge wasn't. Grunge was very uh-huh. much an extension of like seventies rock, whereas corn yeah. was something very unique to the nineties. Um, you could totally make that case, I think, for them. You know, I I I kinda wish there was more talk about corn. Right yeah. now, and less about Limp Biscuit, but you know the Limp Biscuit performance is so memorable, and Moby is so memorable, possibly for negative reasons, that it kind of overwhelms the whole thing. It's like Moby is like the garlic in that movie. Like <laughs> some people can only taste him. That's a terrible way to phrase that. Sorry, I phrased it that way. I just mean like a lot of people. That's what they remember when the movie's over. And yeah. in my opinion. It overwhelms some of the other things that provide more nuance. Yeah, I agree. I think that like I went in expecting way more of a negative like approach to new metal. In reality, I think the documentary does like a pretty or like, a really good job of like you know centering on the real villains, which are the people who put on Woodstock '99 and like the bad actors, you know, at the actual festival. But like, yeah, it, it, you, you gotta hand it to Moby for being like so unlikable that like people will take the side of like fred durst oh yeah you know? i mean john, like that's a ta- that that's a talent right there i mean john Cher is the um is probably the biggest villain of the movie oh but then, god but then moby in a way is like the second one yeah uh, and and again i don't want to rip on moby i'm glad he talked for the film and and, yeah. and, and, and I, I think people are being like a little unfair to him but like his new metal riff i you know, he's painting with a broad brush, I think, yes. uh, to, to put it mildly. Um, but again, I would say, too, that the movie isn't really about new metal. Um, no. it, it's, again, like, if you, if you watch the movie, again, it's only about a five-minute part of the movie that talks about new metal. And then there's other things, you know, there's Jewel, there's yes. DMX in the movie. I mean, there's as yeah. people have pointed out, there's there was, like, a lot of, Music that wasn't new metal. Most of it wasn't new metal. Most of it, yeah. Um, there's G Love and Special Sauce. Where's the G Love discourse, people? And uh, yeah, there's Dave Mustaine. There's Scott Stapp. Um, which, by the way, you know, no one's really talked about this. I thought Scott Stapp was like pretty likable in the movie. Yeah, too. yeah, and, and totally. pretty articulate. And uh, it seemed reasonable. Like, yeah, it seemed like he's gotten himself together. Um, good for him. Yeah, he he looked good. I thought he I thought he spoke well. Uh, so you know, shout out to him, Dave. Creed, must- the the Creed reassessment is just around the corner. Like we are, we we got we got to like collect them all. Like every night, like we've seen like kind of a Nickelback reappraisal, kind of sort of like people are just waiting in the wings for uh, just like give me a reason, right? To like talk about this one song that I liked. Because I heard it on the radio all the time, and I think it's like a lot of a lot of this is just because it was it's more fun to talk about these gigantic bands that like dwarf anything 
that's happening now. Like you, there is no modern equivalent to Creed. There is no modern equivalent of Limp Biscuit Rock or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, Fred Durst is such a larger-than-life character. He's like a yeah. comic book character, and. Yeah. Uh, and in that respect, I think there is something appealing about him, especially if you are younger and maybe you don't have the baggage of the time. Like, I, yeah. I, I, like I've seen people tweet who are in their early 20s who have been defending Limp Biscuit, And I think in a way, they're an easier band to appreciate if you are younger and you weren't alive in 1999 and you weren't aware of like all the other things that were associated with Limp Biscuit. Like, you can just sort of see them in a, in a vacuum as like a fun time goofy band in the same way that like i think people my age looked at a band like poison or something and and felt like oh poison's fun you know why do people hate poison and it's like well because you weren't alive at the time and you weren't seeing like a million bands like that you know like there were like a million new metal bands on mtv in 1999 a lot of them were bad a lot of them people don't remember a lot of them were good too there were great new metal bands you know Slip, you know, Slipknot, System of a Down, you know, Corn, Seven Dust had some bangers. Yes, um, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting because I mean, not only because of the movie are people talking about Limp Bizkit, also because Limp Bizkit was at Lollapalooza, um, and obviously uh-huh. Lollapalooza booked Limp Bizkit before the Woodstock '99 doc came out, so something mm-hmm. was in the air with that band. I'm wondering, like, what do you think about the discourse around like the crowds? At Lollapalooza, because, <laughs> you know, I understand people's concerns about about COVID and the Delta variant, um, but it's not as though there are no other festivals happening right now, or that there's not other concerts or sporting events. Mm. I know Lollapalooza is bigger, but it seemed like the outrage at Lollapalooza was a little disproportionate to me. Mm. It's like, are we saying then that, that, that there should be no public events? Because oh. what makes what makes it better to go to, uh, you know, any concert, any outdoor concert that has, like, like why is it better to go to a show with 10,000 people? Well, you I know? think with Lollapalooza, it's, you know, it's the atmosphere around it. You know, like, his Newport Folk Festival happened as well. And, you know... Newport Folk Festival, at least not in 2021, is going to book Limp Biscuit. Perhaps in like 2051, the culture will change to the point where Limp Biscuit is considered folk music. <laughs> it's <Yeah. laughs> amazing. A, a, docu- a, a documentarian of like our, our, our mundanities. But um, yeah, I think it's just like maybe there's a, a negative view of like Law Blues in general. Like I know a lot of Chicagoans uh, just don't really like what Lori Lightfoot has done in general. And it, it's it's a good target for, like, all the concerns, you know, legitimate that are bubbling up about, like, well, what's happening now that we're all being released back into the wild. But, I mean, a lot of bands, um, what I think you'll start to see is kind of do, like, uh, Vax-only shows. I know Bright Eyes canceled um, all indoor shows, I believe, and uh, Japanese Breakfast, like, I think is also doing, like, Vax-only and New York City uh, is you got to show proof of vaccination or what have you. So, I mean, I think Lollapalooza is maybe like the first big festival. So it's going like outdoor in the United States. So it's going to get the majority of the, uh, you know, discourse around it. Maybe it'll start to tamp down once Riot Fest happens and so forth. And who, who, who that, but like, I mean, when you look at the, when you look at those pictures in general, like that size of a crowd, you just haven't seen that. 
in so long that it's going to be inherently shocking. And also, especially if you're a type of person who just doesn't like to be around crowds in general. Yeah. Uh, everything about it just it just gives you this visceral reaction. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not defending Lollapalooza because in almost every other respect, I think it's kind of a gross festival. I mean, I've been there. <laughs> it's not that fun to go to. Uh, so, you know, I understand people being critical of Lollapalooza as an enterprise. I know that there's also been a conversation about them getting preferential treatment from the city yeah. uh, and, and all that kind of stuff, and I understand that. But in terms of the COVID conversation, you know, it did seem like a little bit of an easy target to focus on this festival where people maybe aren't sympathetic to the bill, you know, or the acts that are playing there. Yeah. And it's easy to say, uh, you know, make fun of this festival or to fret about this festival. And meanwhile, there's all these other things going on where there's lots of people gathering with no masks. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, no one's talking about those things. So I I don't know if it's... Well, those other those other things don't have Limp Biscuit playing. Let's just leave it Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. But, um, I mean, I'm going to a stadium show in Chicago next month. At least as of now, I'm going to go see Dead & Co. at oh, Wrigley yeah. Field. Probably be like 50,000 people there. I mean, I'm vaxxed. The peop- you know, my friend Rob... Mitchum, friend of the podcast. Shout out to Rob Mitchum. He's he's vaxxed. Um, You know, I think, I mean, we'll see what happens. We both have children who aren't vaxxed, so I think there's some concern there. Um, And I don't know if they're going to be requiring vaccination cards or not. I think, wasn't like Live Nation doing that, like Ticketmaster? I thought you had to like, I think when I bought the ticket, it said that you had to bring a card with you to the stadium showing that you're vaxxed. Um, I don't know. Just get vaxxed. If you're not yeah, vaccinated, just, just do it. Just please do it. Uh, you know, do it for yourself. Just be purely just, selfish about it. I mean, there is the larger social benefit of everyone being vaxxed, but do it for yourself because look, you know, there's a chance with this thing going around that you might get it. And if you're vaxxed, it's very, it's much less likely to be a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, it'll, it's, I'm not a doctor, but based on what I've read, <laughs> And based on anecdotal evidence, it seems like people who are vaxxed come through it okay, and it's not yeah. that big of a deal. Indie, indie cast in the pocket they work. of big pharma. Yeah, they work. We're, yeah, I'm just. I, I, I Cor- care about our listeners. Shells, that's what we are. <laughs> I care about our listeners. I am trying uh, to. Uh, I want them to be safe. I want them to be healthy. Right? Is this something we can both encourage our? Uh, yeah, I'm into our listeners it. to do. Totally. Um, so we can keep this going. Um, recommendation corner we're doing it early getting (laughs) vaccinated um let's go to our mailbag i'm wondering um by the way if you want to write to us our our address is uh indiecastmailbag at gmail.com uh please hit us up we love hearing from you i'm wondering should you read this letter because it's it's okay it's addressed to you but i can also read it to you if you want to react to it yeah, why don't you read it? Okay, this is this is directly at you, and I have a feeling that the theme of this letter is going to be an ongoing theme. Oh yeah, of this show for the next couple I've, months. I've really opened the door to people knowing about my personal life. Well, you know, they always say that with television shows, if you want to goose the ratings, you either get someone pregnant or you get someone, <laughs> uh, you know. Like marry them off so you can have like a wedding episode. So this is our gambit for ratings here. We're we're gonna marry Ian off in October, <laughs> and we're gonna. But before that, we're turning it into content on our show. Um, so it says for Ian. 
Yes. Uh, so this is from uh, Dan in Connecticut, uh, and he says, congrats on the upcoming nuptials. And he basically says, uh, I have an idea for your uh, your first dance song, like, like when you and your bride are dancing in front of everybody. And he suggests listening to... Ladies and gentlemen, from out, ladies and gentlemen, we are floating in outer space by Spiritualized. It says it checks the boxes. It's about love. It's a left field choice that the real heads will know and appreciate, and it ends with a chorus everyone knows. Is that last one true? Do people know the chorus? Well, it depends which it depends which version you get because I know until two thousand nine, uh, there was a version with Elvis Presley's "I Can't Help Falling in Love." Like, oh, uh, right. And so the Elvis Presley estate banned them from using it but like eventually they relented and that that chorus is on at the end but that's only if you use the 2009 remaster wow okay so we are being very specific here (laughs) yeah 2009 remaster version of ladies and gentlemen we are floating in space Mm. uh letter continues um it could be so dope everyone (laughs) is crying for 30 seconds and then you go right into hey yeah yeah. Uh, by Outcast, uh, and that's from Dan in Connecticut. So, so we already have listeners making suggestions for your playlist, and cool. uh, and I like <laughs> this idea. By the way, I, I like the idea that maybe our listeners will be your DJ for your mm. wedding reception, and they will pick the playlist uh, for you. Maybe we can float <laughs> that down the road here for an IndieCast sure. uh, special episode. But what do you think of this suggestion, Ian? Um. I mean, I honestly don't know what I'm going to play at my wedding yet when it comes to, like, the real heads. Um, the real heads aren't my real-life friends. Um, you know, most of them, like, who listen to IndieCast have no idea what I'm talking about, like, 95 to 98% of the time. But, um, you know, I do like the energy of this. I think the kind of sound is appropriate. Like, we were going over maybe a few ideas. It was, like solo like post return of the frog queen jeremy enoch or like talk era Sigur ross like something that sounds like 90 percent majestic maybe like five to ten percent emo so this kind of fit <laughs> this this sort of fits in here but like the problem with this particular song uh and this particular album like you said you know it's about love this album to me is about like having a crippling crippling heroin addiction and also uh, Jason Pierce, the leader of Spiritualized, like this album was made after uh, the dissolution of his relationship with the keyboardist of the band because uh, she went off and got secretly married to Richard Ashcroft oh, from man. The Verve, which like, I'm not going to front. Like in 1997, like you're probably, like it, it's kind of hard to compete with Richard Ashcroft. Uh-huh. Like, of course, I would be sad yeah. enough to make this kind of album, but also be like, yeah. Yeah, it is Richard Ashcroft. I though. mean, I I've been married now for almost thirteen years. I might leave my wife for Richard Ashcroft if he proposed uh, <laughs> to me. I mean, especially nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, you know, Urban Hymns, Bittersweet yeah. Symphony, uh, the Richard cover Ashcroft. of Rolling Stone, like his yeah. his cheekbones dug out with a shovel. Oh my god, like that, that is like a rock god right there. Yeah, so. cheekbones to break your heart. That's what those oh, that's what those babies were. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> you know, I know. I have some expertise in this because I DJ'd my own wedding reception, meaning that oh. I, I programmed a playlist and I put a lot of thought into it. And one, uh, I think the central dilemma of doing this is that on one hand, you want to flex your music nerd muscles and just play all these cool songs that you love that many people in attendance won't know. And then at some point you get a moment of clarity and you're like, I actually want people to have fun. 
at yeah. this wedding. And that's when you start plugging in like Motown songs and, yeah. you know, Flock of Seagulls, I Ran So Far Away. You know what I mean? Like, And, and uh, No Diggity. Uh, yeah. All of the, uh, in, like this person said, hey, yeah, things that you might roll your eyes at as being wedding songs, but it's, there's a reason why they're wedding songs, because they deliver, get people on the dance floor, yeah. and it's like, do I want to be cool, or do I want people to like dance and, and have a good time? Um, and I feel like it, it, it's generally better to go with the latter route, even if you have a more predictable playlist at your wedding. Yeah, but I think that, like, this gets to a point where it's, like, if it's the first dance where, like, no one's under pressure to, like, right. you know, get on the dance floor, maybe there you can get, like, your little thing in there. Like, I I don't know. You guys will definitely know what I end up choosing. We're just going to leave that as a cliffhanger to get people who are otherwise, you know, on the fence about whether they choose to continue to listen to the darker, uh, more introspective second year of IndieCast. <laughs> like, they're going to want to hang on till October, okay? Yeah, I mean... Are we gonna get your fiance on the pod at some point? Like, are you gonna like wake her up? Yeah, early in the no, morning? she's total. She's totally gonna get on here um, and just completely blow my cred out of the water because, like, you're gonna ask like a question about I don't know me without you or Pedro the Lion or like these bands to, with which she has like way more credibility than myself. Or we should have got her on to talk about DC Talk. I mean, she was the one who put me onto that. Like that that was in the discourse this week. Um, yeah, I, I like look, man. I'm just, I, I'm just worried about uh, getting pushed out. Like, w- if we were to get her on the podcast, she would have so much more interesting things to say than I do. That um, I, I'm just being very protective and insecure. Well, I think you're selling her as the new co-host of this show. I mean, you're, you're yeah. really building her up here. Uh, I, what I would hope is that I would ask her about your listening habits, and she'd be like, "Oh, he doesn't listen to emo at all around the house. It's all just like James Blunt." Ed Sheeran, uh, he's he listens to all the Shrek soundtracks around the house. <laughs> you know, that emo stuff is just a front for the public. Yeah, it, it, I just I just say I like emo for like the the vast amounts of credibility and money that uh, being a fourth and fifth wave emo fan can acquire can acquire in twenty twenty one. Well, you're a leading uh, superstar in the indie podcast realm. So, yeah. the, the, so you've landed. We're the, ol- that. we're the only stars in this galaxy, Steve. That's true. Remember what we? <laughs> That's true. So, I mean, so you have established a really strong brand because of that, yeah. and then your fiance will talk about all the Shrek soundtracks that you listen to in your private life, and they'll totally shatter that. So, maybe for my own good too, we should keep her quiet. But I don't know. We maybe we'll get my wife on the show too. We'll just have yeah. like, the uh, the spouses of Indiecast like Ooh, spinoff. That- Podcast. Could be great. (laughs) Um, Well, let's get into the meat of our episode. We're going to be reviewing two albums in this episode. So the first album we're talking about is, I think it's fair to call it the biggest album on the planet right now. It's called uh, Happier Than Ever by Billie Eilish. And of course, Billie Eilish is the 19-year-old phenom uh, from Los Angeles, California. She put out her debut album in 2019 called When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? Which... uh, just became a huge blockbuster, swept the Grammys, uh, and it really made her, uh, is it fair to call her the biggest pop star on the planet? I mean, certainly she's among the top five biggest pop stars. Maybe not like as big as like, say, Taylor Swift or what have you, but at least the one with like popularity combined with like cultural juice. Like I would say that 
you would look at her. It's like, yeah, this is what we will remember in 2019. Like when, when, when the period pieces about the late aughts get made, like this is what we're going to look at. And the flip side, of course, of that sort of notoriety is that being famous can be really sucky, especially when you're as young as Billie Eilish. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about some of the controversies that she's been involved with in recent years, mm. all of which seem pretty silly. Like, I was thinking about that story about how she didn't know who Van Halen was, and yeah. like people jumped down her throat about that for, like, a week, I feel like. You know, just things like that. She's so famous that anything that she says tends to get blown way out of proportion, and that really feeds into this new record. It is very much a reaction to fame record, uh, and... It's also made in collaboration with her brother Phineas, who was uh, her main collaborator on the first record. So there's that stability there creatively, but lyrically there's a lot of instability going on where she's reflecting on this newfound status uh, that she's had. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this album last week, and we were wondering if this album was going to be a disaster of some sort that might be overstating it a little yeah. bit, but just, be, just some of the advanced singles to me were not especially strong, especially, you know, like songs like lost cause and NDA to me, having heard the record, I feel like those are among the weaker songs on, on, on the album. And this does seem like another example of like a big time album being ill served by the advanced singles, because I actually think this record's like more interesting than, we were led to believe by the early uh, morsels that we were fed. Yeah, we were dead wrong about the reception it's going to get. Like, it's one of the most uh, acclaimed albums of the year thus far. And, like, of course, you know, at the at the outset, I was a little skeptical of that because I think a lot of the bigger publications have, like, a vested interest in someone like Billie Eilish continuing to be at the forefront, you know, as much as she represents a kind of a new type of pop star in a lot of ways she is still very much like um it appears like she's the type of pop star that dave grohl will look at and say like this is the new nirvana i think he actually did say that because that's a very dave grohl thing to say well and not just him but like billy joe armstrong uh eddie vetter guys with their fingers on the pulse (laughs) well all the all the 90s rock guys it seemed like billy eilish was the one that they latched onto, and i feel like that probably was related to her image on the first record, which was, I think, more akin to like an yeah. alternative rock '90s kind of gothy, struggling thing. with fame as well, because you know, like that was that that was the thing in the '90s, you know, like struggle, like uh, like I'm a pop star, but like, does this like, do I find this to be like uh, ethically satisfying? And so, uh, I think it sets. Yeah, there was this like kind of like rockism thing with her yeah, a little bit, it like is. Where, uh, and I hate using that word, but I mean, it did seem like people who wouldn't normally be clued into contemporary pop music really latched onto her. And I'll say that for myself. I really like that record too. And I probably responded to the more, I guess like nine inch nails aspects of that first record. Like that's what, that that's what brought me in. And on this record, a lot of that stuff has been pushed to the background. If the first record was like an early nineties record, this one is almost like a late nineties. Yeah record like the trip hop element here and and the more kind of like laid back um almost like uh pan cultural aspect like there's a song in here called billy bossa nova 
<laughs> which ba- Billy Eilish is like a bossa nova. Billy Eilish and Origami Angel both had their bossa nova songs. Like uh, I-, I would have to say, I prefer the Origami Angel version to Billy Eilish, which of course I would say. But I just love the fact that I can say something like that in 2021. You know, one thing that is not very 90s about this album is when we talk about 90s records that would react to yeah. fame, you know, whether it be in utero, like I guess in utero being the defining example, it was always about getting louder and more yeah. abrasive. And I feel like now we're in a moment where quiet is the new loud, you know, like because <laughs> I think about this album and the Claro album that came out, I guess about a month ago or so, where that album also is, I think, more hushed and more introspective than... Claro's first album, it seems less about the earworms and more about sort of looking inward and, and, and again, singing in very hushed tones. And Billie Eilish already had that on her first record, but she doubles down on it on this record. And I think it does make this album initially maybe harder to access um, because it's not as, um, I think, grabby as the first record. Um but in a way, you know, I respect what she's doing because I think in a lot of ways, um, this wasn't the obvious second album for her to make. Um, but there's things on this record that I think eventually reveal themselves to be pretty catchy. Like the song Oxycontin, I think is like a pretty big difference. Song. I want to say that from like a scientific perspective, oxytocin. That, yeah, Oxycontin is a very different thing. <laughs> this is where your expert or like I didn't change my number. I like that song. That's a really good song. And again, I feel like those songs are stronger than some of the singles that were forwarded ahead of this record. Like I, I think I, I was, I was really pleasantly surprised by how much I like this um, because, well, I think the pleasant and surprise part is due to the fact that I came in here with like really not a lot of context. I mean, I heard the singles in passing, and you know, when when you're less, you know, when when you're less relied upon to have like something to say about like the zeitgeist, um, you don't have to engage with the most popular shit on earth but like when i you mentioned trip hop like this is a this is something that i don't get to talk about a lot on this particular on this show uh, or just in general but like late 90s like second year college i was deep in the tank of like all those remember some guys trip hop artists like dot allison lamb maloko sneaker pimps uh you know post massive attack stuff like uh what's that Oh, God, I can't, I can't, I can't remember some of these guys, but I listen to it and it's, you know, it, it reminds me of that era of music where it makes me like, if I were 19 and listening to that, it would make me feel like I was 28 or something like that, like much cooler, much more mature. And I think that makes it an easier album for me to process than listening to something like say Olivia Rodrigo, which, you know, you kind of have to feel, you kind of like put yourself in the mindset of a teenager. Like, this is a much different sort of uh, nostalgia for me. Uh, one that's a bit easier to access and one that doesn't really, like, um, impress itself on me. So, uh, it, even in the same way that, like, Folklore does. Like, Folklore in its own way is, like, a pretty loud album. Um, and so, like, I feel like I could just, like, listen to this and kind of think back to being in college and, like, thinking about, like, what my first apartment's going to look like and so forth and yeah i mean it's and also i think a lot of the sounds are like legitimately innovative of course this comes from a perspective where i'm listening to like mostly guitar-based pop punk now it's like i almost think like i like this album more because like because of like the revival of pop punk it's like oh cool this doesn't have travis barker on it i might try to engage with this (laughs) 
I mean, I'll, I will say I think this is a step down from the debut. I think okay. the debut record is better than this record. And there's some moments on this album that I don't really like. Again, like the Billy Bassanova it's song. It's long. <laughs> yeah, it's long. And she's attempting things that I don't think she quite pulls off on this record. Although I do appreciate, again, that uh, she didn't make the obvious follow-up to the big-time debut. You know, she's not trying to make another bad guy on this record. Yeah. Or- it seems like she's really trying to take a snapshot of where she is at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that regard, the album is a success. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, one thing that has come up with this album is people talking about her writing about her own fame. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is something that comes up often with, with huge pop stars who uh, start to feel some backlash to all the success that they've had. And of course they're going to write about it because it's the biggest thing in their life. I mean, what what else is Billie Eilish going to be focused on at this moment? And I have to say that, like, I, I tend to like records like that um, when, they, when they're pulled off because I think that, yeah, well, you can't relate to Billie Eilish handing an NDA to someone that she hooks up with, you know, so that he doesn't, like, go to the tabloids and, like, talk... Because I think that's what the song NDA is about. It's about like her picking up a dude and then like she gives him like an NDA and like sends him away. That's not something necessarily that the average person can relate to. But, you know, she is singing about, um, you know, depression, uh, you know, not feeling comfortable in your own skin. I mean, these are all things that I think people can relate to. I mean, she's not just talking about how she can't decide on which yacht to buy. Or yeah. something, you know. Which, I, if she was, like, I think that would be interesting. I listen to a lot of like, uh, I listen to a lot of rap, of, like where it's you know, t- like Rick Ross, for example. It's like I don't want to relate to pop stars. Like, I, I, I want them to be inaccessible in that way. And I think that, like, specifically the first song where she talks about like the things I used to enjoy just keep me employed. Like, I like she's obviously talking about like music and the experience of like being her. But like when I'm when I'm like 200 words into like a 650 word review of an album that I'm like, fuck, why did I take this assignment? Uh, I just think back to like, you know, the blogging days of 2004, when I could write 5,000 words about Death Cab and be like, yo, Billy, I, f- I feel you on that one, you know? <laughs> I-, yeah. I feel you on that. Yeah. And, and, and look, I, I mean, she did have a tremendous amount of success in a relatively short period of time. And and in a way that like, I think like, how could that not be destabilizing? And I think that actually is interesting to look at. Like I, 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 I want to hear from a person who's gone through an experience like that. Cause it seems pretty extraordinary, you know? And the thing with Billie Eilish too, is that I, I feel like she's been used a little bit by things like the Grammys or like yeah. by aging rock stars as like a signifier of like hip youth culture. And it's like, this is something that we can glom onto to make ourselves look hipper than we actually are. And that's a tremendous burden to be putting on yeah. someone like Billie Eilish. And I feel like this record in a way is like her starting to come out from under that where, like you said, it, it isn't a record that's, that feels adolescent. It does feel like an adult record and as she progresses in her career and she gets to album three and four you know she's not going to be the young phenom anymore she's going to be you know a young woman in her 20s and i think i'm sure that's important for her to not just be perceived as this sort of youthful wunderkind you know that other people can point to and say i like this and that makes me cool that is a word i've never heard said out loud 
Yes. I think I said it correctly. <laughs> yeah. I hope I, I did. I assume so. I don't know. So, well, let's move on to our next record. And I feel like you need to take the lead on this one because this band, <laughs> is this your favorite band currently uh, working right now? I would say it's definitely, I, I think they're the best band working right now. But we're talking about, of course, The Offspring's new album. No, I'm playing. Um, <laughs> Uh, we we are talking about, of course, the new Foxing record, Draw Down the Moon. Um, it's a very special occasion when I actually get to introduce the band. But Foxing, um, they've been around since uh, 2011, let's say. One of their first splits, oddly enough, was with Japanese Breakfast back in the day, before like anyone knew who either of them were. But 2013, they released an album called The Albatross, which features the you know fourth wave hit singles, The Medic and Rory. Um, and you know, they become like one of the main players in the emo revival. They put out an album called Dealer in 2015, which gets famously panned by Anthony Fontano. Um, and then in 2018, they put out an album called Near My God, which is what I would call like the best album of any genre of the past five years. Um, just the art rock masterpiece gets them out of the realm of emo and to the more kind of like Radiohead, TV on the radio. Like this album was like really popular amongst like my 30-something friends who stopped, you know, reading Pitchfork in college and like have just kind of lost their, like just stopped following the narrative. Um, but they after three years, they're back with a new album called Draw Down the Moon. Um, and they're down from a five-piece to a three-piece. I also want to give a shout out to uh, the... Uh, interview I did with them for Uprox, which is which ran yesterday. Uh, take a read of that to give you a little bit of background about. Um, they're kind of a quintessential indie cast band in that they've had like a lot of bad luck in their time, like van accidents, getting thirty thousand dollars worth of gear stolen, uh, critical indifference, just a sense of a band not being as big as their fans believe they should be. Um, and I think this record is a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting move to make at this point because on a superficial level, uh, it might sound like them just saying, fuck it. We're just going straight pop now. Uh, like we're no longer interested in courting like the credit, like the hip, like credible sort of like, like they say in the interview, it's like, we wish we could get signed by four AD, but it's probably not going to happen. So this album uh, the lead singles, people have compared it to uh, Passion Pit. Uh, some people have compared it to, like, say, Group Love or Of Monsters and Men. And what I find interesting about this album is that on one level, it is kind of a, I don't want to say a bid for, like, pop. Like, because that's, every indie band does that. It's like, yeah, man, we, we really allowed ourselves to embrace our love of Carly Rae Jepsen and, like, Taylor Swift. But... This kind of goes for more of a late aughts, early 2010s festival indie sort of sound, which to me is like the most daring move possible because it's not like Limp Bizkit or Offspring where we have enough distance from it, uh, where we could, even if like you didn't like those bands, you could kind of say, well, it was popular and they had some bangers. Uh, and it's not recent enough where they can sound like completely modern. So they're in this kind of weird weird like uh weird valley of nostalgia which i love this style of music i think it's an incredibly interesting and catchy record but i also think it puts them in a position to get absolutely slaughtered in the critical realm which is exciting from a critical standpoint because i can't think of the last record that really put itself out there on a limb 
like this. I mean, I'm very curious what you think. Because I'm, I, like, I love this band. People know that, which is why we're talking about this, even though it's definitely not on the level of Billie Eilish. But I, 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 I'm just very curious about, like, the foxing agnostic or foxing fence sitters. Well, I have to say that I was dreading talking about this album for a while <laughs> because I know how much you love foxing. And I have to say, I, I like foxing. I like Near My God. I like their other records. This is a band that I'm inclined to cheer for, for all the reasons that you just said. Um, I think that they're a talented band. They've had some bad luck. So yeah, I cheer for them to build an audience and and uh, to get outside, I guess, the emo niche and, and, and reach more, I guess, I guess, regular indie listeners because i think there's a lot of people that would dig this band that might not otherwise know who they are um but i have to say like for the longest time like i had trouble getting into this record yeah because i've had it for about three or four months and every time i would put it on i just was not responding to it and i have to say that it wasn't until like the last week that it really started to come into focus for me and now, you know, I, I, I quite like the record. And it's interesting to me that I didn't really like it at first because I think it is um, a pretty approachable record in a lot of ways. Um, the thing I'll say about Foxing is that I feel like in some ways they remind me about, of one of my favorite bands, The National, in Oof. that I okay. think, well, in this respect, I think The National, like I love their records, but I think they are prone to overthinking their music like they'll write a really good song and they'll like rework it and rework it forever and sometimes in the process of that it gets a little overcooked Mm -hmm. and you hear it on the record and it doesn't totally work and then you hear it live and it sounds way better uh that's not true of every national record but it's true of some of them um and i think with foxing there's a similar phenomenon where they almost are trying too hard at times, and they're thinking a little too much. Mm. And I wonder if, like, this record, and even moments of Near My God, would have been better served if, like, there just wasn't as much going on. Mm. You know, if it had been simplified a little bit, uh, it just presented, like, in a little bit more of a straightforward manner, I, I, I feel like it would maybe hit with more people. Now, having said that, I appreciate, in theory, this band's ambition and that they're not just taking the easy way. You know, I, I, I love that about bands. And mm. it's something I really admire about them. But, you know, you talk about their bad luck. I think sometimes they make it harder on themselves than they need to. Mm. And I wonder if that will be a problem with this record. Which, again, I think is like a, a quite strong indie record. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would tell people that if it doesn't connect with you right away, to be patient with it. Because... For me, I feel like that paid off eventually, but it took a while. It was not a record I heard the first time or even the fifth time and liked. You know, I, I had to listen to this record about a dozen times <laughs> before it really started to connect with me. Um, and and that, that's a sign of some of the best records ever made, by the way. I, I, I love records that are like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I don't even know if that's a criticism of them as much as an observation. I think that they overthink it sometimes <laughs> and it makes it more difficult for them than... It needs to be because I think they write songs that are really good and are the kind of things that, again, if you like this kind of indie music, this sort of big, ambitious, anthemic indie music, this is something that should be up your alley. Yeah, and I think that like you've levied a criticism that like the band will admit to a lot, which is that specifically on their first two records, um, 
they would they're they're very ornate very um detailed like almost very very soft in a way and you would see them live and i'll just like say i've said this before in any cast like foxing or like easily they're uh, they're the best live band working in like indie like in that level of band like emo revival or otherwise like every time i've seen them they've just completely blown whoever they're playing with off the stage and they've played with like some pretty impressive bands and you know they would say like fans would come up to them it's like got like how come you guys don't sound like that on the album <laughs> and you know i think with this album it'll be like super interesting to see how it comes off a because they're finally getting back to playing live after like doing this whole album remotely. Uh, and secondly, it's, these are a lot of, so- a lot of like, there's like a lot of electronic elements, a lot of synthesizers, uh, like, like people are saying, it's like pretty passion pit. Uh, it's uh, similar to MGMT. And I mean, I- I'm just curious, like what you think of like that era in general, because I think this record to a certain degree is going to, uh, you know, have people talk. There's, there's definitely a song on here that reminds me of Cold War Kids. Um, but and and it's like, do I like these songs because they're foxing, or was I unnecessarily biased against, like, say, Cold War Kids or Group Love or any of those bands because they didn't come out of the emo revival or whatever? It's like, are these bands like subject to a reappraisal the same way like Jim Blossoms or like Sponge were? Well- yeah, I mean, I think so because there's a whole generation of people that were 14 when those albums hit, and yeah. they're going to look at them differently than someone who was 24. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I think if you were 24 when those albums hit, a lot of people heard, you know, MGMT or, or uh, Passion Pit as like an echo of what they feel was better music mm-hmm. in the early part of the aughts, and this is a pattern that, of course, continues. Over and over and over again. I mean, we were talking about the 90s before, you know, and how, you know, there's a generation of people that were 14 when Significant Other came out. And they don't like hearing people that grew up on Nirvana records trash, you know, Limp Bizkit. Because they feel like, well, this was something that meant a lot to me when I was young and you were too old to appreciate it. So I feel like there's probably a generation uh, like that with this record. Mm. Uh, You know, I mean... the thing with Foxing is it, you know, you were saying like, this is the best album of any genre in the last five years. Near my God. Like I, I just, want oh, I'm to sorry. Near <laughs> my God. Near my God is the best album of the yeah. last five years, you know, best album of any genre in the last five years. And I know like for people who love this band, you know, there is that kind of hyperbole, you know, people feel really passionate about it. And, and, and I've interviewed uh, the band too. And, and, and they are taking big swings. You know, you mentioned Radiohead. I know like when they were talking about near my God, they were likening that to like, well, this is like our okay computer. Like this is what we're trying to do with this record. And in a way I feel like that's great. I wonder to what degree that hurts them a little bit because it creates this level of stakes where if it isn't a masterpiece or if they don't break through, it almost seems like a failure when in reality, these are like really good records and it doesn't have to be a masterpiece or it doesn't need to take over the world or get like a 9.0 from Pitchfork <laughs> to uh, be validated. I mean, I think it's really good for what it is. I, I just wonder if the band and maybe some of their fans, and I guess I'm grouping you in this, if you, if you, if you just like raise the stakes too high where it's like hard for them to kind of appreciate just like what they've done. 
Yeah, I'm like Moby in this situation where people are like reacting against like my hyperbole. <laughs> but actually, they bring that up in the interview that I did with them where it was like, they. I mean, they say like, you know, critics such as yourself would always talk about like how, um, you know, like how much bigger they should be and in a way that like that made them kind of not appreciate the success they do have. Because I, like whenever they talk about like how difficult it is for them to sustain as a band financially or whatever i think to myself like this is a really popular like popular in the sense of like indie rock like they are they're like very successful and so um yeah i do wonder sometimes and i think this a lot with a lot of the bands that i talk about like whether uh i do them a disservice by being so passionate about them uh and you know but i think this record in a weird way despite the fact that it's it the sound is much more pop focused. I think it's a more internal, uh, lower stakes record. It doesn't feel like it's bearing the weight of the world on its shoulders the same way Near My God did. And also, it's you know it's self produced. They started their own label. I think in a weird way, this is like a pop pivot, but like for Foxing fans. Uh, yeah, and again, like I to go against something I said a little bit earlier, you know, while I do think they overthink things sometimes, I do appreciate the level of craft and the attention that they put into everything that they mm-hmm. do. Didn't they make a music video that was like hand-drawn animation? Yeah, rotoscoping. And they spent like 400 hours learning how to do that. Which is just insane. Again, I think that is a perfect synopsis or microcosm of like who this band is. It's like they put so much work into that. Which, you know, they could have just done a performance video or something. You know, yeah, that would have been and, a lot easier. And the but fu- they went the hard route. And and there's something that in some ways you might say that's misguided, but in another way I feel like that's so admirable. And I, I appreciate that they do that. I think the quintessential Foxing story is that uh, on the day they released the title track, uh, the guitarist Eric Hudson made like a tweet of like, guys, guys will just remember, like guys will just have the best time remembering some sports guys. And like it got like 300,000 likes and he, he would just say like, yeah, man, like this, this was like way more popular than any song I could have possibly written. So it's like this little dumb tweet that he put out. Uh, like, I think that was like the quintessential Foxing story. It's like he, he accidentally invented remembering some guys and it blew up in the degree they just could not do if they had all of like the label resources in the world. <laughs> now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I recommend something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So, there's a new record from a band called Lantlos. Uh, I do believe I pronounced it right. There's a kind of a, a, a symbol over the O. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce. But, um, you know, over the past couple of years, we've discussed this on IndieCast about how, like, Deftones and Hum have become almost, like, primary influences in the world of indie rock and, like, how cool that is. But this puts me in a position where I'm like, if a band is compared to those, I kind of don't want to listen to it because so many bands just do the kind of dark and like moany and slow version of the that kind of shoegaze. Whereas Lantlos, they're a band that was, uh, I guess, like kind of pre-Sunbather Black Gaze. And now in this new one, it kind of sounds more like Mew or uh, Stars by Hum or like Be Quiet and Drive. It's like the pop version of um, those bands. And it's just really interesting to me in a way that a lot of like uh, shoegaze isn't. 
Uh, it's very pop forward. And also, it's kind of an interesting comparison to the new Death Heaven record, which is kind of going in a similar direction. Like, this just sounds like a like a metal shoegaze album that was pitched up to, like, 45 RPM. Um, an, an album that I imagine I'll be listening to a lot over the past, uh, over the next couple of months. Um, and, you know, they have a really interesting catalog as well. Uh, they get, like, way more jazzier and darker in the past. So, th- if you like bands like Alcest, if you like bands like... Um, you know, Def Heaven, Sunbather, if you like nothing. This is an album that like takes a more interesting pop look at things. So Lantlos, the album is Wild Hunt. I know that pr- translates to Wild Dog. So that's my recommendation for this week. That sounds very cool. I'm going to definitely check that out. Um, my album is called No Medium. It's by a singer-songwriter from Philadelphia named Rosalie. That's mm. Rosalie without an E at the end. It ends with an I. Uh, no Medium is her third record, and uh, it includes contributions from people like Matt Barrick from The Walkman and Robbie Bennett of The War on Drugs. Um, she's also like played some shows with The War on Drugs. Like mm. If you're a fan of that band, you might have seen a cover uh, of Because the Night, the Patti Smith song uh, that they played at a homecoming show in 2019, and Rosalie sings like the Patti Smith parts of that song. Um but the most uh, crucial contributor uh, to this record is uh, the David Nance Group, who I, I've talked about oh, this yeah. band uh, on the show before. Uh, big fan. They put out one of my favorite records of last year, Staunch Honey. Uh, really great band. And they are the backing group on this record. And it's a great combination because Rosalie is this really insightful singer-songwriter, has a great folk sound, reminds me a little bit of like Sandy Denny. Uh, mm-hmm. Or uh, I know... Uh, She's also been compared to people like like Linda Ronstadt as well. Mm. I, I think I heard like a Chrissy Hine comparison because she has kind of like a nice, low, sultry sounding voice. Um, so you have that combination backed by this band that it just sounds, it's like big muscular guitars. Um, they sound like Neil Young and Crazy Horse. I mean, that's the most obvious comparison to make, but it's obvious for a reason. Uh, so really great songs and just like a really crunchy instrumentation in the background. And uh, a friend of mine told me about this record uh, earlier this week. This album actually came out in May, but uh, I feel like I discovered it at the right time because it's just a perfect like early August type album. Uh, so yeah, if you're having a barbecue this weekend, you're going to be hanging outside. Definitely throw this album on. I think it's going to really hit the spot. Again, it's called No Medium. The artist is Rosalie. Uh, yeah, and definitely check that out. Um, We've now reached the end of this episode of IndieCast, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 